so very delighted that we have today with us Dave Jordan. And I, I'm delighted for multiple reasons. Uh, Dave is a friend, a, a good friend who has uh, beaten up on me and my woeful uh, tennis game on many occasions. But he, in that context, has also tried hard to educate me about how investors view subsets of the world that we are very interested in. And Mark and I have been fascinated by tribal finance and particularly tribal casino bonds. And I confess, I did not think that Dave would know about these because my understanding was that he primarily interests, uh, invests in uh, corporate instruments. But to my great delight, uh, he did know an enormous amount about this subset of the market. And so I'm hoping we can talk to him today about all of the questions that we have and then, well, the downside is our students are going to realize how little we know about this, but no matter. But welcome, Dave. Thank you so much for giving us time today. Uh, Mathieu, thank you so much for having me. I very much uh, look forward to uh, sharing my insights on this uh, fascinating topic with you all today. So, Dave, can we begin with talking about kinds of assets that you invest in? Or maybe you can also tell us, uh, you know, who you invest in. The invest in four and how tribal casino bonds fit within this category. And then we'll go from there. Mark and I have a ton of questions. We'll go from there to our specific questions about how all of this works. But maybe we could start with just a little background about you. Sure. So I work for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board. Uh, which is the group that oversees the pension fund for all the retirees of the state of Wisconsin. And I manage the high yield portion of those investable assets, which is about $7 billion uh, AUM. And my goal is to uh, allocate that amount to corporate debt. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm a debt guy, uh, all high yield. And not, let me emphasize the high yield spectrum of that corporate debt. So anything junk rated, um, double B, single B, triple C. Um, and one of my sectors that I cover, I have a team uh, of individuals who uh, we all work together. Um, but one of my areas that I, I cover is gaming. And um, obviously, tribal casinos, uh, such as uh, uh, Mohegan, um, is one of the gaming names that I look at, and uh, one where we do own bonds of uh, uh, the Mohegan uh, uh, Tribal Gaming Authority, uh, which is the uh, group that oversees um, uh, the, the, uh, several properties, uh, the biggest one uh, being uh, the Mohegan Sun uh, in, uh, in Connecticut. So uh, my goal is to, or my objective, professionally is to identify which bonds offer uh, the best risk reward, the best upside, and try to beat uh, a benchmark, uh, a high yield benchmark uh, over the course of 
uh, a year in the short term and, you know, in perpetuity uh, longer term. So Dave, it's, it's um, one of the things that's super interesting to me about the tribal casino bonds. And I think in describing this, I might reveal something really wrongheaded about how I think. And so I hope you'll tell me if, if that's the case. Um, but my first inclination whenever I think about um, a bond is I try to kind of figure out how I should think about the issuer. And I think that comes from, you know, I'm mostly a, a sovereign debt and contracts guy uh, and come at bond markets is sort of tangentially in that way. But I, I, I draw important distinctions between sovereigns and maybe quasi-sovereign entities like uh, Puerto Rico or um, muni bonds. Um, is this the right way to think? And if, if it is, how do we think about these tribal casino bonds? Are they is sort of sovereign, quasi-sovereign, casino? Are they just casino bonds? Are they tribal bonds? Do you think in those in those terms? And if so, I guess how do you think about the about these bonds? Yeah. So great question, Mark. So I, I, I'm going to speak on you know behalf of uh, uh, the investor community because I believe that my thoughts around this uh, probably in all certainty mimic. Um, you know, my, my peers, my colleagues, other investors uh, who run uh, and manage portfolios of uh, similar size in that we view these more like a corporate credit than we would a sovereign bond, uh, than a sovereign credit. Namely, because when the, the metrics that we're looking at, EBITDA, leverage, CapEx, credit rating, revenue, you name it, would most align with other similar credits in the gaming space, right? So, um, you know, I think it's interesting uh, uh, to compare uh, performance uh, and these various metrics to those uh, similar companies such as Caesars, such as uh, a Boyd Gaming, such as uh, a Bally Gaming, and, you know, a whole host of, call it levered casino operators. Um, I don't, think that there's many in on my side of this who think of um, tribal gaming bonds more as a, a, a sovereign uh, type of credit, which isn't to say they don't, which isn't to say that's the better way. But generally speaking, the way it's viewed from the investor standpoint is more like a corporate uh, uh, credit rather than a sovereign one. Well, well, so that's interesting to me because it, it highlights maybe a divide between I don't know if it's the way of thinking of someone who's only a lawyer, or maybe it's just my kind of pointy-headed way to think about it. But it's the the criteria you talk about are economic and financial criteria, whereas my brain immediately goes to the question of enforcement. It's like, well, the reason I I kind of liken them to sovereign or quasi-sovereign entities is the enforcement gets all strange compared to a normal corporate bond. And so does, do questions of enforcement play a role in your thinking at all? Um, it didn't, it didn't sound like it from the, the, uh, the prior answer you gave. Sure. So let me, let me take one step back and tell you how I think about things um, from my standpoint. And then I will lead into how it's kind of looked at uh, in terms of uh, uh, enforcement. So you're absolutely right. My criteria criteria for whether or not to invest uh, in these bonds and as an investor, 
uh, how I'm uh, evaluating uh, uh, these while I own these is, as you mentioned, uh, financial. Again, I'm looking at things, um, metrics like leverage, like EBITDA, like revenue growth, uh, 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 capital expenditures, uh, potential M&A, all financial metrics to help me determine, am I being appropriately compensated for the risk that I'm taking by holding these bonds? Where enforcement at the uh, sovereign or quasi-sovereign level comes in is further down the road in the areas um, if these bonds or this entity uh, uh, were to get distressed, right? So let's imagine a scenario. We can use COVID as a, as a fantastic one, or, or you know, a, a recession-type scenario where um, EBITDA starts to drop precipitously lower, uh, leverage starts to tick higher, and uh, tribal gaming company is unable to refinance their debt and gets into a stressed situation where they potentially have to restructure. Uh, uh, seek bankruptcy protection, however that might look. That's where enforcement of uh, quasi-sovereign issues uh, come into play. Now, th th there's a, a big gap between where we are today uh, and that particular scenario, but there is you know, a certain uh, a subset of distressed investors who might be more in tune with assessing um, you know, let's call it recovery rates, you know, assessing the financials or the viability of this debt within a sovereign structure and what it might mean for, you know, the assets at the tribe level, what it might mean for recovery on the bonds at that point. So there's a, there's a, 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 a large distance between where we are today and where we might be, um, you know, in a distress type scenario. What I can tell you is right now for the, uh, you know, the biggest um, tribal bond that exists now, uh, that of uh, Mohegan Gaming, it is a performing credit. It yields around, gosh, it, you know, post earnings 7%. Market's a little volatile right now, so who knows where it is today, but right around 7%, which is a performing credit, um, nowhere near distressed. I think it's trading at, you know, you know 103, so uh, uh, decently above par. So, for the time being, the metrics that matter to us, again, on the investor side the most are the financial metrics that I mentioned with very little concern of how things might look in uh, uh, the event of a restructuring or a, a, any type of a reorganization. So I, I guess let me summarize. I think you and I are both correct in how we look at it, and it's more a function of the conditions of the entity at any given time. Right now, because it's performing, I think of it more as a financial corporate. In terms of in periods of distress, um, those uh, there will be other groups of investors or legal scholars who will be looking at it in terms of uh, a sovereign uh, debt uh, piece and, and how uh, it might be impacted from that manner. So th this is this is fascinating and. We're going to ask you more about this, although it's, it's, it's very stressful to hear you use words like EBITDA and leverage and future M&A, because I don't teach any of that to my students, and it sounds like that's the most important stuff, so I'm going to have to go look up EBITDA, and I always ignore any of my colleagues' papers about that, and you're telling me. Uh, not to anymore. But Dave, uh, 
Can you give us a sense of the tribal gaming market? Uh, are there a lot of tribal gaming firms and do you invest in a lot of them or like a portfolio or it's just particular ones? And then also maybe if this isn't too much, uh, also a sense of how big the, the gaming issuer market is more generally. That, that does it all like you, you buy a portfolio, like a diversified portfolio of like a bunch of casinos, some in Las Vegas, some in Nashville, some, some in Macau, or, or is that not the way it works? Yep. So the great, great question, Mitu. So let's start with your first question on, you know, the size of uh, the tribal gaming market. Um, it is, it is quite small. It was bigger, uh, probably about five or six years ago. There were, um, you know, probably let's call it five or six, uh, primary issuers. Most of those have taken two paths. They've either defaulted, reorganized, restructured, however you want to call it, or they've seek to obtain financing outside of the high yield market, whether it's through uh, private loans, whether through some other type of financing, um, whether it's through some avenue that I simply don't look at and is beyond my area of, of expertise. Uh, for the time being, uh, the biggest one, uh, the biggest entity uh, that we look at now is that of Mohegan uh, Gaming, uh, which has about just, you know, billion and a half, I think it's 1.6, 1.7 billion of bonds outstanding, um, which is, you know, that's a, that's a decent size. It's a pretty big issue. They have it split between second liens and unsecured debt. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, in terms of gaming, it's not very big. Um, you know, to, to your scenario, uh, gaming is quite extensive. Uh, there is a lot of levered entities that are out there. And yes, like you mentioned, uh, you know, there's the MGMs and Boyds and Caesars of the worlds who, um, you know, operate, um, well, not even, you know, major, uh, have a majority of their properties in Las Vegas, but then have some now in Boston and some in New Jersey. Um, there's kind of what we call single site uh, entities, some that are, you know, in, in, in Chicago, some in Pennsylvania, some all around. And, and you know, it's my job, again, to identify um, you know, those particular companies that I think offer the best risk reward. So yes, I do have a diversified portfolio of gaming bonds. Um, and then there are some entities that I simply do not own. Um, and that's more of a reason that, in my opinion, their credit spreads just simply trade too tight for the risk uh, inherent in kind of a cyclical uh, company like uh, uh, gaming. So COVID was a good a uh, reminder of how quickly things can turn when um, things get bad. And, and some of these credits, again, solid companies, highly rated. It's just not the risk reward just isn't there from a, a credit spread standpoint. Now, take something like Mohegan, which because it's, uh, uh, it's what we call split rated. So um, I believe Moody's has them rated B, uh, S&P, triple uh, uh, C, and um because of that triple C rating, obviously it's going to trade with a little bit wider of a credit spread because it's there's you know a pejorative term around the fact that it's labeled tribal. Uh, there are certain uh, investors who simply don't want to get involved. 
um, for many of the reasons I discussed with Mark earlier, they don't know what it, the what what a bankruptcy might uh, look like. So I, I, again, it's my job to identify. Okay, would I rather own X? Would, would I rather put my marginal investment dollar in um, uh, Mohegan, or would I rather put it in one of those other companies? Um, and again, it's all about portfolio management and find, trying to find a good balance. But uh, we do happen to own uh, a decent amount of these Mohegan um, bonds simply because we like the risk reward. We like where it trades from a credit spread um, and yield standpoint. And we like the financial metrics that I discussed before. Well, Dave, as we go to break, I'm, I'm wondering if we can shift gears just a, a slightly with a kind of off the wall question about um, what I guess you can call sin securities. And I think Me Too even knows this literature much better than I do. But my, my sense is that there's at least some body of scholarship that uh, finds a kind of pricing penalty for companies that are, I mean, casinos, I think would be a great example, but companies that are sort of associated with activities that illicit is not the word, but that are, you know, some people would call sinful or um, maybe even illicit. And I'm kind of, I'm wondering, first of all, if that rings true to you in any way. But I'm also wondering if the category makes sense in a context like this. I mean, my, my understanding is that a lot of the revenues from tribal casinos in particular are earmarked for development purposes. And so, you know, depending on your perspective, they're, these aren't sin securities, they're ESG lending in a way. So I guess I'm, does, that, uh, does that way of looking at things jibe with your perspective? And if so, how do we, how do we think about tribal casino bonds? Yep, so um, I think, let me phrase, let me answer it this way. At one point during my career, and I've been doing this for quite a while, um, uh, gambling and casino related bonds or even the equities had some tinge of sin uh, simply because, you know, it, it, it's gambling and does one want to include companies that benefit from, you know, taking other people's money through the form of gambling and issuing stock to their equity holders? Does one want to invest in that type of entity? That has, has um, certainly diminished uh, over the years. And so I wouldn't call it a sin uh, type security. I certainly wouldn't also call it uh, an ESG or, or green type security. Right now, the types of companies that fall into um, uh, the, uh, we've got a, there's probably a better uh, uh, adjective than sin, but um, companies like tobacco companies are, are fall in that category. Cannabis um, uh, type uh, uh, companies, uh, would fall into that category. And we're seeing more and more every day, those types of companies that, uh, you know, uh, adversely affect uh, uh, the climate. So think of uh, some oil uh, uh, companies, old, old school E&P, coal. Coal is a perfect example where um, not only has that, you know, suffered from uh, uh, an investor uh, standpoint, just with the move to uh, uh, renewables, but um, Right now, there's a large, large, a large subsection of the investor community, and larger every day, that simply won't touch a, a, a coal name 
um, and fewer and fewer are even looking at some of these um, oil uh, EMP uh, type names. So on, on the grand scheme of things, casino names have become more mainstream and their proliferation across the country, uh, I think has really uh, gone far to uh, remove that negative uh, tinge of sin uh, and it's become, you know, now viewed as a, you know, a, a reputable and, you know, perfectly fair type of uh, company to invest in. So I have so many more questions on this and I, I'm not going to ask them because we should go to a break and then, then move on to some of the other questions that we had planned to ask you, Dave. So let's go to so many more questions to ask you, Dave, but just following up on what we were talking about before, and I think this is a version of a question that Mark had asked, implicitly at least, which is given that the revenues from many of these casinos are being used for economic development for the tribes, and given that these tribes have historically been severely disadvantaged for all manner of ills brought about by not their fault, why aren't these bonds being marketed with like a big label of, you know, socially beneficial or super green? or feel good about yourselves and buy these bonds. I mean, I keep reading study after study about how there is a greenium in the market and institutions like BlackRock really want to invest in socially beneficial projects. Given all of that, why not just slap a label on these and say, here, this is as socially beneficial and uh, guilt reducing to the modern American investor as possible. I mean, if the Saudi oil company can be marketing its bonds as green, this is like super green. Yep, so great, great question. And, and to be perfectly honest, I don't know why it's not uh, marketed and labeled in such, in such a manner. What I do know is the, the, the typical types of securities that uh, are labeled green usually offer some benefit from a, a you know an ESG perspective um, that uh, uh, we discuss. It, it, it's it's an interesting question, and you know there there exists some uh, potential that that might happen down the road. But what what we actually see is instead of um, you know a type of uh, discount for it being green, uh, there's an actual uh, premium that investors command. Again, you know, the opposite effect where um, I know that as an investor, I need a certain higher uh, coupon, a higher yield in order to invest in this. Um, and what you're proposing is, well, gosh, if they label it green and label it uh, uh, socially beneficial, then there would, be a not, there would be a separate investor base who would uh, uh, require a smaller coupon, which therein would be uh, more cost effective for uh, the issuer. Um, so it's a great question. Um, I think it's probably, it would be great if we actually had uh, somebody from, um, you know, we'll just again use this as an example, somebody from Mohegan uh, to uh, uh, actually uh, have this conversation with um, and say, hey, why not uh, highlight 
and tout uh, the merits of uh, uh, the ultimate benefits and, and how much uh, uh, good this does to the tribe itself. But uh, yeah, it, 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 it's an interesting uh, question. I don't know the answer as to why uh, they don't try to spin this and market it uh, as positively as they can. So Dave, I, I wanted to, to shift gears again, um, although maybe I'm shifting them back in the overly legal direction that I, I um, was coming from before. But in the, in the sovereign debt literature, at least the academic literature, some of the most important questions have to do with sort of three crucial features of sovereign bonds. So one of them is whether the contract has some kind of bankruptcy light restructuring mechanism built into it. So, you know, some contract equivalent of bankruptcy. Another is relates to the enforcement question I was I was raising earlier. It's, you know, has the the government waived its sovereign immunity? And then another has to do with what law governs the instrument. Is it New York law? Is it uh, English law? Is it the, the issuer's domestic law? And, and there is some evidence that these things are priced. Um, uh, certainly, they're priced in the vicinity of, of distress, but, um, but there's even evidence that they're priced a bit at, at issuance. And, and so I'm wondering whether those kinds of considerations play a role at all. And I know we've talked about enforcement in general, and that is that is hardly top of mind when you're making these decisions. But I'm wondering if you draw even rough distinctions along those dimensions of governing law, for instance. Is that relevant at all or or no? Is that is that also something that comes up late? Right. So what I would say is, is kind of like I alluded to before, it, it's definitely important. It definitely comes up. There is definitely uh, a time where um, we, we, we would need to know what type of contract we're under uh, in the event of a bankruptcy. You know, what, is the, what, what, what are the specific laws that are governing this type of you know, financial contract that borrow and le- borrower and lender have? And this is where um, my ignorance really just comes in is I am not that investor who is focused on this right now. So what that means is in the event of this entity becoming distressed, and I'm almost certainly going to be a seller because that is not my mandate. My mandate is not to get involved in two distressed situations. That is an entirely different investor base. Um, you know, think of some of the biggest... Uh, uh, distressed funds. Uh, there are Elliott, Apollo, uh, Centerbridge, you name it. Um, those are the different types of investors who would then say, okay, I'm going to buy these, these bonds at, at distressed levels, you know, anywhere, you know, call it, you know, 60 cents on, on down from real money pension fund holders, such as myself. And they will be the ones who will have a far, far greater expertise uh, on knowing and, and being able to answer the questions uh, that you identified. In fact, that's that's essentially their business, right? Is they have legal teams, they hire uh, law firms who specialize uh, in this uh, particular area, uh, and will will be far suited, better suited than I would ever be uh, to uh, uh, identify uh, investment opportunities from from that standpoint. Um, again, there is precedent, as I mentioned uh, earlier on in the podcast. There were a lot more tribal gaming uh, issuers 
who eventually did uh, uh, have to file and, and restructure. And so, um, you know, it, it, it does happen. And there are, I'm, I'm confident investors who are, are, have been through that process before, uh, who know who the legal experts are in that and who are ready and willing to uh, uh, make an investment and uh, carry the process uh, forward. So Dave, I, um, just to build on this line of questions, I was so interested when I saw in the Mohegan Gaming offering circulars, these, these three features and the three features are, you know, the governing law was the governing law of New York state. They had waived their sovereign immunity. And while they weren't particularly clear on what would happen in terms of federal bankruptcy, at least if I look at the background law, it seems like the tribes cannot uh, avail themselves of federal bankruptcy, at least uh, not very easily. Now, uh, from a legal perspective, these are all big things that, you know, if you waive your sovereign immunity or you choose to be governed by the law of New York as opposed to your own law um, and you can't go bankrupt, those are all, uh, I, would, I would be telling my students, those are all good things for investors. And uh, I would show them uh, academic articles that do empirical studies that show that uh, you get a little, a few basis points for each of those things. Now, I've always been dubious that a real world investor actually cares about any of this stuff or would uh, give me a few extra basis points if the governing law is, you know, New York as opposed to California. Waiver of sovereign immunity is broad as opposed to narrow or accessibility to chapter nine bankruptcy versus no accessibility. So this long-winded question is just to ask you, how many basis points would you pay for all of these? Or is it just, you wouldn't pay anything for this? Right, so uh, that's exactly how uh, I view it, right? While I you know, will be the first to raise my hand and tell you, gosh, I'm ignorant when it comes to this. I simply don't know the answer to a lot of these um, uh, legal questions. But what I do know is it is uncertain. What I do know is that it is a risk. And what I do know is there is some variability in the legal implications of a restructuring that are far different than your other uh, type of gaming companies. So what does that mean? It basically means that I need to have some type of premium spread um, higher coupon, if you will, in order to take on that, uh, that risk. So when you think about, um, you know, similarly levered type companies uh, to, to Mohegan, and again, I'm going to use that as an example, something like a Bally's, something like a Caesars, uh, Tillman Fertitta just brought a new bond deal to the market uh, for his properties. Those are all levered triple C entities. And what it, what it basically means is all else being equal, because Mohegan is a tribal bond, I need to command a, a, higher, a higher yield. And, and you know, given that, um, Mohegan uh, actually trades uh, wider than uh, Caesars, uh, than Caesar bonds do. Obviously, much smaller uh, entity, uh, Caesars, um, you know, one of the bigger uh, uh, casino uh, games uh, around. But, um, you know, Mohegan 
uh, trades wide of Caesars and, and, and flat to Bally and Fertitta. And again, a lot of what we do, it's all relative value. I can't give you a, an exact number of saying, hey, here's the absolute right spread. Here's the absolute right yield for this risk. But the way we look at it is saying, okay, again, if I get, if I have an additional uh, marginal dollar of, um, to put towards uh, any one of these, I need to assess uh, all of those, variab those various companies and determine where I want to ultimately make um, my investment uh, decision. And so knowing that there is this uh, label of tribal for Mohegan just requires me to take on uh, added uh, spread, added yield in order to take on that risk for those potential um, bankruptcy reorganization questions that I simply, uh, you know, don't know the answer to. This is this is fascinating. You'll be amused. You and Mark will both be uh, amused, I think. So this past week, I uh, taught an article in my debt class about the effect of bankruptcy eligibility on the yields of municipal issuers. And the article that we were reading posited that for entities that are eligible for federal bankruptcy, then here chapter nine, because investors hate the possibility of bankruptcy, they um, charge higher amounts for entities that can go bankrupt. And for entities that cannot go bankrupt, like a tribe, they are willing to lend at much lower uh, yields. And the real world in, at least with Mohegan that you've described seems to be exactly the opposite of our academic discussion where, and please correct me if I'm wrong, where it seems like Mohegan that cannot go bankrupt and has waived its sovereign immunity, it pays significantly higher amounts to borrow maybe as much as 200 basis points, if I understood you correctly, uh, than an entity like Caesars that uh, even I know, not following the casino world, seems to go bankrupt, you know, uh, on a regular basis. This seems, did I get that right? I mean, it, it, it's the opposite of what uh, I've been teaching my students. It's so yeah. embarrassing that I'm saying this on air. So I think, I think there it's a question of semantics. While the entity, the sovereign entity can't go bankrupt, the operating company can certainly go into restructuring and there can certainly be a default, which is probably the better term to use on those bonds. So at some point, if things get too stressed or, or, or distressed, I should say, um, there can be a, a default on the bonds where you're not, you're no longer going to earn, you know, par uh, at maturity, and that's where it gets really tricky to say, okay, well, gosh, in the event of a default, what type of recovery might I get on these bonds? Is it forty cents? Is it twenty cents? Is it zero? Um, and again, there are, you know, I'm I'm, I'm sure it, as we get closer. I don't, I don't want to jinx it, but should we get close down that road, there will be teams looking and saying, what really is the recovery value? What are, what is the value of these assets? What is my claim to uh, these assets in the event of a, a default? So again, from your standpoint, 
it, there, there may not be a bankruptcy possibility, for, but for mine, there can certainly be a default possibility. And because of, of that possibility and, and the unknown of what it might look like, that's where the higher yield and spread uh, comes into play. Um, you know, which, you know, again, is, is, is no different than uh, think of it in terms of credit ratings. I, for a triple C rated bond, I need a higher uh, yield than I would for a double B uh, gaming bond. To some extent, it's kind of uh, similar. For a tribal gaming bond, I'm going to need a higher yield than for a non-tribal bond, even though, like you said, somebody like Caesars has gone into uh, bankruptcy uh, uh, chapter 11 before, I think as recently as 2015, 2016, uh, that time time frame. But since then, they've cleaned up their balance sheet quite quite nicely and, and uh, have restructured and have come out with a more manageable uh, uh, capital structure. And therefore, their bonds trade where they do today, despite the fact that, you know, historically, they've uh, uh, filed uh, uh, in the past. You know, Mohegan is just one of those uh, situations where, yes, because uh, there is a greater likelihood, or, or I don't want to say greater, it's really the unknown of what bankruptcy would look like, which is why we need a higher yield and spread. Um, definitely not, you know, a, a likelihood situation. I mean, so, and Dave, we, we should let you go soon, but I, I want to ask one, one final follow-up, if I can, which is in a way sort of just another version of the question I keep asking, which is, um, so the interesting thing to me is that part of what I'm, I'm getting from this conversation is that there is a, a sense in which the legal kinds of questions that Me Too and I have been have been thinking about are priced at issuance. They're in this little premium that's associated with the fact that it's a, a tribal bond. And I, I when I try to square that with your description of focusing mostly on financial metrics at the time. Uh, you're making the investment decision. It, it, I just I find it really interesting. So, um, you, you know, if people, if I'm sort of a, a, a managing an issuance for the tribe, I don't want to waive my sovereign immunity. I don't want to agree to New York law. And if I think people aren't paying attention to that kind of stuff, I, I don't see why I would do it. I certainly don't want to do it if I'm not going to get paid for it. So there must be someone in the market, right? Who's who really is focusing on this stuff and who has some sense of how to price it. Otherwise, you know, it's sort of a, a giant arbitrage opportunity, right? Like why, why would, it, why, if nobody is paying attention to legal matters, expertise is not that expensive. You gain a little expertise and you pay a few basis points more for the the stuff that's enforceable. It, it, somebody out there must be alert to those things, right? Who, like, who are those guys? So uh, undeniably, and again, the people that are are most in tune with the with the issues that you're that you keep asking about are those that uh, need to be when it becomes relevant, right? When it becomes more important. So let me take a step back and think of you know essentially what uh, I'm what I'm looking for. I'm looking to make a financial investment uh, in uh, a, a casino operator, and I want to make sure they, you know, generate cash flow. I want to make sure um, that they're able to pay their interest uh, twice a year, 
And ultimately, I want to make sure that I get paid back par uh, at, at maturity. So from my standpoint, I'm just looking for, again, those financial metrics to make sure that I'm, I'm, I, I satisfy, the company satisfies all those three things and, and can make and continue to pay me uh, the interest that I earn by owning the bonds and then can either refinance uh, uh, at a later date or you know, pay, the pon- pay the bonds down at par. So if that's what I'm focused on right now, I don't need to really be too concerned about how it would work in a distress situation down the road if things get really bad. But there are certainly those investors who will. But as I, as I mentioned to you, it's just a matter of time where there, there's going to be a rotation from me as an investor uh, where I, and then things get distressed to another investor who's going to take that on. And then they're going to be the ones who have that expertise and have um, the um, uh, either the legal team in-house or we'll hire the legal team to address the legal uh, questions uh, that you've all identified, which are all very important questions. Again, it's just a, a different subset of investor who will be the ones asking those questions. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a special treat for us and soon for our students. And I hope this is the first of many occasions on which you will come back and visit us. So thank you, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Matu. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.